Last time we spoke about the mop-up operations on New Georgia, and the continued drive upon Salamau and Lay. Munda had fallen. New Georgia was certainly a lost cause, but that doesn't mean that there wasn't some cleaning up to do. The Americans were stuck mopping up places like Arundel and Banga, seeing fierce Japanese resistance. Sasaki ordered his men to fight as hard as they possibly could, while others would make their way to evacuation points. Over on Green Hell, the Australian and American forces had just taken Mubo and Lababia Ridge, prompting General Nakano to create a last line of defense in front of Salamaua. Now the Allies had to cross the Francisco River and face multiple hills, ridges, and knolls. Forward units forded the Francisco River and grabbed a few knolls, catching a glimpse finally of Salamaua. But a glimpse was all they were going to get as the Japanese fought tooth and nail to push them back. This episode is Operation Postern. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and so much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, The Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. Over there I just released a historic film review of Oppenheimer. You can also check out my Patreon account at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel for exclusive podcasts. This month's exclusive podcast is going to be on Tomoyuki Yamashita and how he became the Tiger of Malaya. Check it out, it means a lot to me. The time has come at long last. For months, we have seen the Australian and American forces fight for each hill, ridge, and knoll, cross over ravines, rivers, swamps, a green hell of landscape, filled with more horror than just the Japanese. From the jungles of Wau to the rugged mountains of Bob Deby and Comantium, through the endless rain, mud, and death, Operation Postern was finally to be unleashed, Landings at Ley and Nadzab would commence. Now back in August, Admiral Barbie and General Wooten were forced to postpone D-Day for September the 4th. For Ley, the plan called for two battalions of Brigadier Victor Windir's 20th Brigade to land on Red Beach. The 2 and 15th Battalion would hit the eastern flank, and the 2 and 17th would hit the western flank closer to Ley. The 2 13th would hit Yellow Beach. The 223rd Battalion, with a company of engineers, a field ambulance, a force of artillery, and light anti-aircraft sections would join the landing phase. The 26th Brigade would follow up the initial landings and move right through the beachhead. The planners were concerned with possible Japanese naval action against their beachheads at night, as this had occurred at Guadalcanal and Milne Bay, so the defense of Red Beach would be coordinated with the 2 and 2nd Machine Gun Battalion. Red Beach was selected as it was close to Ley, but just a bit due east, a bit out of range of her large gun batteries. Yellow Beach was further east and selected as an additional landing area to protect the eastern flank of the main beachhead that would be at Red Beach. The Allies could not provide continuous air cover, 
Thus, Brigadier Victor Windair's 20th Brigade would have to land and unload quickly as hell. The initial plans called for a time of landing known as H-Hour, to begin between 3 a.m. and 4 a.m., in line with Wooten's request that it occur two hours during moonlight just before the dawn. They estimated they would need 9 to 10 hours for the unloading phase. The LSTs would then retract at around 1 p.m. However, when the landing date was postponed for September the 4th, this kind of changed everything. Now there would be no morning moon, thus H-Hour could not be scheduled until after sunrise to allow time for the Allied Navy to identify the correct beach on a coast that was covered by low-lying swamp jungle terrain. There was no prominent landmarks, so it was going to be difficult. This delayed the landing until 6.30 a.m., resulting in the loss of around three hours of unloading time. Alongside that came the decision to retract the LSTs by 11 a.m. as the Allied air cover could not be guaranteed after 11 a.m. Thus, the unloading time was now reduced to 4.5 hours, and that's a hell of a lot less time than they needed. It was also expected that the troops would take at least 1 to 1.5 hours to disembark, leaving just 3 hours to actually unload supplies. Again, as I've said a few times in this series, logistics are not sexy. But these are the kind of problems needed to be overcome to win wars. So Brigadier David Whitehead's 26th Brigade was going to follow up the initial landings, moving straight through the beachhead with the 2 and 2nd Machine Gun Battalion, who were earmarked to guard Red Beach. Furthermore, General Heavy's brigade would dispatch some amphibian scouts with the 532nd Engineer Boat and Shore Regiment to go in on the first wave to establish red and yellow markers for the two beaches. To make things even more confusing, there was this enormous fringing reef along the thousand-mile coastline with a few breaks. One break in the reef line near a village called Tuali was going to be marked Green Beach as a backup landing area. The one and a half mile of Good Narrow Beach was to be Yellow Beach 1, and yes, there was a Yellow Beach 2, closer to Cinemati. Admiral Barbie was going to employ every vessel he had. Four destroyer transports, the Gilmer, Humphreys, Brooks, and Sands, 20 LCIs, 18 LCTs, and 13 LSTs. From August the 20th to the 22nd, Barbie had a full-scale landing rehearsal carried out at beaches on the south coast of Normandy Island. The men learnt a few things from this experience. The first was that the servicing of tracks with steel mesh was too slow to allow vehicles to clear the beach. They decided that more stores would be loaded as bulk cargo and more labor would be provided to clear the landing crafts. Thus on August 29th, the 2 and 13th Battalion was taken to Normanby Island on destroyer transports where the men were disembarking from the LZVPs up to their necks in water. There were major differences, as you can imagine, for the conditions in Australia versus New Guinea. As Patrick Bork remarked, The country fringing the beach was the worst we had been in. Almost impenetrable jungle grew in waist-deep swamps, crisscrossed by much deeper creeks. There was also a preemptive naval bombardment of Finschaffen, as reports began to come in indicating enemy troops and supplies were being moved down the coast from Finschaffen by night. Vice Admiral Carpenter ordered Captain Jesse Carter, commander of Destroyer Squadron No. 5, to sweep the Juan Gulf by night and to hit Finschaffen. One of Carpenter's staff noted, It will be worthwhile to prove the Navy is willing to pitch in, even if we get nothing but coconuts. 
On August the 22nd, destroyers Perkins, Smith, Cunningham, and Mahan departed Milna Bay en route for the Huen Gulf. This was the furthest Allied vessels larger than PT boats had ventured along the New Guinea coast since the beginning of the Pacific War. Early on, on August 22nd, they had opened fire on Finchafen, firing 540 rounds of 5-inch shells within 10 minutes before hauling ass out of there. It was the first naval bombardment of Japanese forces in New Guinea. As for the battle over the skies, General Kenny was preparing to launch a series of air raids against Ley to support Operation Postern. On the day before the landing, 21 Allied bombers would hit Ley airfield to try and knock out their aerial capabilities. Now all of that was just for the Ley landing. We got an entire other operation to hit Nadzab, designated as Z-Day, which, because of the postponement, was changed to September the 5th. 96 C-47s, 82 carrying the regiments, 5 carrying artillery, and 9 for supplies would be employed by Colonel Paul Prentice's 54th Troop Carrier Wing to transport Colonel Kenneth Kinsler's 503rd Parachute Regiment. Alongside this, Brigadier Ether's 25th Brigade were earmarked to be the first flown in after the initial landings. On August the 31st, they would toss three battalion commanders, their operations and communication officers, with supplies using a flying fortress at a very low altitude over the drop zone. They were acting as a sort of reconnaissance, and they would uncover vital information to ensure safe location markers for accurate future drops. Hell, they even performed meteorological analysis to figure out the wind conditions for the jump areas. Meanwhile, they keep saying every day here in Montreal it's going to be sunny and it's rained for five days straight. There would be rehearsals for the parachuting forces before September the 3rd, when the final plan was issued. Kinsler's 1st Battalion, led by Major John Britton, would hit Field B, with the task of securing Nadzab's airfield site before establishing a defensive perimeter and beginning work on the airfield. Meanwhile, the Australian 2 and 2nd Pioneer Battalion, led by Lieutenant Colonel J.T. Lang, would cross the Markham to help construct a new airfield. Alongside this, Kinsler's 2nd Battalion, led by Lieutenant Colonel George Jones, was going to hit Field A to capture the Gabsonakek area which would prevent the Japanese from advancing from the north or the northwest. Kinsler's 3rd Battalion, led by Lieutenant Colonel John Tolson, would hit Field C to capture Gametsung and prevent the Japanese from advancing from the east. Furthermore, Prentice would drop 22 dummy paratroopers into the forest south of Yalu, right where the Japanese forces occupying Heath's plantation would be able to see them. It was hoped this deception would delay advances towards Nadzab. By the way, I took the time to educate myself a bit more on what is known as para-dummies, because honestly, until writing this episode, I had no idea this was even a thing. They were these burlap cases filled with straw and plant waste. They kind of look like Sackboy from uh, PlayStation, if you know what that is. As you can imagine, from ground level, looking fairly high up, they would look like real paratroopers and they were often dropped alongside real paratroopers to give them a fighting chance against enemy bullets. So, uh, I guess the more you know. After all the planning was done, Barbie's little armada departed Milna Bay on the morning of September the 3rd. Their journey was pretty uneventful, as they disembarked at Buna for a short break before re-embarking in the late afternoon. After this point, Heavy's Morobi base was hit by nine Rabal-based Bettys with 27 Zeros for escort, which tried to high-altitude bomb them, doing very little damage. Because of the deceptive campaign against Salamaua, termed the Salamaua Magnet, 
very few IJ forces were left guarding Ley. At Ley were companies 10 and 11 of the 115th Regiment to the right bank of the Markham, Company 6 of the 238th Regiment at Markham Point, the 2nd Machine Gun Company of the 238th Regiment were spread between the Bunga River and the Bula River, the 15th Independent Engineer Regiment, and 2nd Company of the 5th Battalion of Heavy Field Artillery, the 25th, 29th, and 30th Machine Gun Cannon Companies would all be at Lei proper. Aside from the very few IGA troops, Rear Admiral Fujita Rutaro had the 7th Base Force, formed around the 5th Yokozuka and 5th Sasebo SNLF and the 82nd Naval Garrison's anti-aircraft and coastal defense units. The Japanese were having a hell of a difficult time supplying their forces at Lei. To supply the nearly 10,000 or so men present within the Lei Salamao area each month required 150 barges carrying 1,500 cubic meters of supplies. Only large types of barges could manage to get through the damper straits, which had some rather rough sea. Smaller barges were too dangerous for the task. After each passing month, the naval ships used for transports were decreasing, and by May, the supplies were being carried by six submarines, cutting the volume in half for the following month. After that, supplies had been carried over land from Wewak and Medang, and a new barge route was established through Sio and Finshafen. Regardless, the Japanese were barely able to keep Lei and Salamawa supplied. This saw barely 300 fit men left to guard Lei, with 2,650 troops malnourished, sick, wounded, or suffering from tropical ailments. The Japanese did have some big guns, however. 28 75mm, 4 105mm, and 2 155mm for coastal defenses. But their ammunition supply was quite limited. The 155mm only had 30 shells apiece, while the 105s had about 50. By late July, General Adachi decided to place Major General Shoki Ryachi in command of the defenses at Lei, which would be quite the unfortunate shitty promotion in the end. Ryachi's 3rd Battalion of the 238th Regiment was sent first to Salamawa. Then Company 6 and the 2nd Machine Gun Company of the 238th Regiment managed to reach Lei, but by the time things cooked up, the rest would be stuck in Finchafen. Therefore, Rear Admiral Mori Kunizo was sent to grab command of the 7th Base Force. And in the meantime, while Fujita would lead all the IGN and the IJ units currently at Lei. By nightfall on September the 3rd, the final voyage had begun. The Allied vessels got to the assembly area unhindered and undetected, and by 5.50 a.m. on the 4th, identified the beach markers. The destroyer transports lowered the landing craft carrying the first wave while performing a six-minute barrage. The first landing craft hit the beach at 6.30 a.m. and at his guard post at the Japanese anti-aircraft positions overlooking the Lei airfield, one private Wadakichi heard the sound and saw the flashes of a naval bombardment out in the Hoan Gulf. He wrote this. Suddenly, there was a booming sound from the sea, and in a split second, I sighted red and yellow tracers come flying on a half-moon ballistic arc. Where would the huge fleet land? Aren't they, in fact, landing right here in Lei? If I must die, I will fight with courage and die like an Imperial Navy man without shame. Brigadier Winder's troops began to land at Red and Yellow Beach, only meeting 30 members of the 2nd Machine Gun Company of the 238th Regiment, who they brushed off around the Bulu Plantation. General Kenny unleashed air raids against the Japanese airbases. 
At 7.45 a.m., 13 RAF bombers, 10 Beauforts, and 3 A-20 Bostons hit Gazmata. At 9 a.m., 24 Liberators hit Ley. At 9.30 a.m., 9 Mitchells hit Tulavu on Cape Gloucester. And 3 Bostons returned to hit Gazmata again in the afternoon. As the 22nd Squadron War Diary noted of the Gazmata Raid, The Strip is considered unserviceable. The second wave approached the beach in larger LCIs, managing to unload six companies without any opposition, other than some very annoying reefs near the shore. Those two waves had hit the ground uncontested, but danger did lurk in the skies above. Six KI-43 Oscars and three KI-51 Sonyas took off from Ley at 7 a.m., and four minutes later the Oscars began strafing seven LCIs carrying the 2 and 23rd Battalion and its divisional HQ while the Sonyas bombed two LCIs. One of the bombs crashed through the main deck of LCI-339, just forward of its pilot's house, setting the ship on fire before it began listing to port, taking on water. The LCI ran ashore and was abandoned by the crew, ten of which were wounded. Another bomb narrowly missed LCI-341, exploding near the bottom of the vessel, blowing a large hole amidship of her port side, flooding two compartments. The list of port was corrected, and the LCI managed to run ashore and would be salvaged later on. Nine men were killed, and 45 were wounded during the attack. Eight boomerangs and two wearaways came over from Tsili Tsili to aid the next echelons as they began to unload units. The LSTs began clearing the landing area by 11 a.m. The LSTs took a lot longer to unload than expected. They had arrived at 8 a.m., but they cleared the area over the course of six hours. Meanwhile, General Imamura frantically launched a strong air raid towards Lei, consisting of 12 Bettys, 8 Vals, and 61 Zeros. The 81 aircraft strong party departed Rabaul, but was soon discovered by destroyer USS Reed lingering off Cape Cretan at around 1 p.m. Reed's report gave enough time for the Allies to toss a counter air wave to intercept them, consisting of 40 Lightnings and 20 Thunderbolts. A few Vals tried to bomb Reed in the meantime, resulting in all misses. The interception saw the loss of 23 Japanese aircraft, mostly Zeros, while only two Lightnings were shut down. However, many Japanese aircraft continued towards Morobe, where they descended upon the six echelons LSTs just off Cape Ward Hunt at around 2 p.m. These were carrying the Australian 2 and 4th Independent Company and the 2 and 2nd Machine Gun Battalion, just 33 kilometers east of Morabe, heading for Ley. Six Vels managed to land two bomb hits on LST-473, and the Bettys one torpedo hit against LST-471. This killed 51, wounded 67, mostly of the 2 and 4th Independent Company. The Japanese lost an additional four Zeros and three Bettys, while 15 other aircraft were pretty badly damaged. The remaining LSTs continued on towards Red Beach, while some others were ordered to divert course to assist the damaged LSTs from the aerial attacks. Destroyer Humphrey would grab the wounded and bring them back to Buna. Everything arrived on schedule for 11 p.m. Thus, Admiral Barbie had managed to land 7,800 personnel, of which 3,780 were combat troops, along with 3,300 tons of supplies. After the landings, engineers at Red and Yellow Beach got to work, constructing roads while Windir's combat troops began to extend their perimeter. 
By nightfall, the 2 and 17th Battalion had crossed the Busso River, and by 7.30 a.m., the 2 and 7th Field Company had built a single girder bridge across it. To defend against further aerial raids upon the beachheads, a battery of the 2 and 4th Light Anti-Aircraft Regiment landed two detachments at Red and Yellow Beach. By mid-afternoon, the 2 and 13th had extended the Yellow Beach perimeter around 3,000 meters inland, and 2,000 meters east to west. Lieutenant Colonel Colvin's two companies of the 2 and 13th advanced inland towards the Bulu Plantation, sending the 30 Japanese who tried to contest them earlier further north towards some hills. Aside from them, there were no signs of other enemy. By 2 p.m., patrols of the 2 and 13th and 2 and 15th were fording the Suez River between the Bulu River and the Red Beach. Colonel Grace's 2 and 15th Battalion were given the task of protecting the beachhead while Lieutenant Colonel Simpson's 2 and 17th began to advance towards the Busso River at 9 a.m. Two companies of Major Broadbent advanced northwest across the Busso, going another four miles, finding no enemy. Two companies of the 2 and 13th would also advance east along a track going towards Hopoi, where opposition was expected. General Wooten wanted to speed up the advance towards Ley to prevent the Japanese from any time to organize a defense east of the Busso River. Moon gave Brigadier Whitehead's 2 and 17th Battalion the task of passing through the 20th Brigade and continuing on towards the Buso River. Over on the other side, Admiral Fujita began deploying his forces in a defensive perimeter between the Markham and Buso Rivers, with most of his naval units taking up positions on the right bank of the Buso, while Companies 10 and 11 of the 115th Regiment, around 127 men, were sent to hold Singoa Point. General Shogi rushed over as quickly as he could to take command at Lei, while General Nakano sent Major Mukai Masatake to assume command of the frontline actions. The next day, the Australian advance going east and west continued still with no opposition. Simpson's men went west, advancing through some horrible, wet and boggy terrain. To Simpson's north was Broadbent's men, who got lost for a little while, fording some rivers until they made it to the Singoa Plantation. Meanwhile, the 2 and 23rd and the 2 and 24th Battalions followed behind them led by Lieutenant Colonel Gillespie and Major McRae. They bivacked south of Apo, where Whitehead placed his HQ. During the morning hours, Brigadier Bernard Evans' 24th Brigade embarked on 20 LCIs over at Buna and they began to land at Red Beach by nightfall. As the lay operation was moving along full swing, it was now time for Z-Day. A B-24 Liberator crashed on takeoff after clipping a branch and ramming into five troop trucks full of soldiers waiting to embark. Its four 500-pound bombs exploded, tossing 2,800 gallons of fuel in all directions, killing 59 people and wounding 92. It was a horrible disaster, a very bad omen. The armada of C-47s were being escorted by 48 Lightnings, 12 Aracobras, and 48 Thunderbolts which was a very intimidating force. Generals Kenny, Vasey, and MacArthur accompanied the armada aboard some flying fortresses. Kenny said to MacArthur before they boarded, They're my kids, and I want to see them do their stuff. Apparently to this, MacArthur hesitated for a moment before replying, You're right, George. We'll both go. They're my kids, too. Kenny worried about the consequences of both of them being killed by, quote, some $5 a month Jap aviator. MacArthur only worried about becoming airsick and throwing up in front of his colleagues. 
General Vesey, who had witnessed German paratroops in action over Crete back in 1941, watched the drop from above and would write to his wife. I wanted to see paratroops land from the top rather than the bottom, as in Crete. Over 302 aircraft crossed the Owen Stanley Range. Heading the Armada at 1,000 feet were B-25 strafers carrying eight .50 caliber guns in their noses and 60 frag bombs in their bomb bays. Behind that, at about 500 feet, were A-20s ready to lay smoke as the frag bombs exploded. At around 2,000 feet behind them were 96 C-47s carrying the paratroops, supplies, and artillery. To all their sides were the fighters sitting at around 7,000 feet. Following behind all of this were some B-17s loaded up with 300-pound parachute bombs, which would be dropped by the orders of the paratroopers when they landed. Then even further behind all of that were B-24s and some more B-17s who were going to hit Japanese defensive positions at Heath's Plantation and other points between Nadzab and Ley. Air attacks against the defenses would be followed up with smoke screens. At 10.22 a.m., the C-47s began to drop their paratroopers over the target zones. Each C-47 dropped its men in less than 10 seconds, and the whole regiment was unloaded in four and a half minutes. The whole of the Nadzab area was landed upon and taken uncontested. Watching it unfold, Kenny was impressed, going on the record to say, The operation really was a magnificent spectacle. I truly don't believe that another Air Force in the world could have put this over as perfectly as the 5th Air Force did. By 2 p.m., the 2 and 2nd Pioneer Battalion crossed the Markham, arriving at Nadzab during the night. The 2 and 2nd Pioneer Battalion began hacking and burning kunai grass off the airstrip to clear it up before successfully extending it from 1,500 feet to 3,300 feet. This would allow the 871st Airborne Engineer Battalion to land so that they could construct two additional airstrips. On September the 7th, Vasey's 7th Division began to land at Nadzab, only facing some challenging weather. C Company of the 24th Battalion, led by Captain Arthur Duell, departed Deep Creek on the 4th to attack Markham Point, acting as a diversion. Lieutenant Fred Child's 14th Platoon performed the initial attack from the southwest, followed up by Lieutenant Maury Young's 13th Platoon, who advanced down a ridge near the river. Two other platoons covered them as they all blasted motors over the Japanese camp and unleashed two Vickers guns on Labu Island. 100 men of the 6th Company 238th Regiment were taken by surprise. They had dug in behind some barbed wire for several months astride a razorback ridge along the Markham River. Their surprise wore off quite quickly as they unleashed heavy fire, killing 12 men and wounding six. The Allies were forced to pull back after killing 18 Japanese. Further to the south, General Nakano was facing some pressure from General Milford's 5th Division. During late August, the Japanese had been fighting tooth and nail to hold their last defensive line in front of Salamaua. The Japanese forward positions had been hit by heavy artillery for a very long time, but their defenders were hunkering down. Brigadier Monaghan elected to send a company to cross the western slopes of Charlie's Hill and to occupy a position on its northern portion, thus isolating the Japanese there. This was the same strategy that had been employed against Mount Tambu. However, Milford instead elected to toss a frontal assault, believing his artillery support would win the day. Zero hour for the assault was to be 3.20 p.m., from 11.30 a.m. until then, artillery smashed the Japanese positions with over 2,000 shells, 450 motor bombs, and 6,000 rounds of machine gun fire. 
When Zero Hour hit, D Company of the 42nd Battalion began their climb. Lieutenant Garland's 17th Platoon led the way, immediately receiving enemy fire after the first 100 yards. Two other platoons crossed around to the left and right only to get a few yards further. The approach to Charlie Hill from the west was a very steep, thickly clad razorback. Garland's men had not even seen the enemy and five of them were hit. Two hours after the attack had begun, platoon leaders signaled down the slope that no progress could be made. It was simply too steep. Up above there were four well-camouflaged machine gun nests unleashing havoc. The assault was cancelled and the men had to withdraw. Over to the west, the 47th Battalion launched two attacks against the Kunai Spur. Captain Aubrey McWater's A Company began their attack at dusk on August 28th. Sergeant George Pitt's 9th Platoon took the left as Barnett's 7th Platoon took to the right. The assault fell into hand-to-hand -hand combat quickly. Barnett was twice wounded and his men were forced back. Pitt's platoon ran into heavy machine gun fire from a well-dug-in log bunker, and they were forced to back up after receiving two deaths and two wounded. On the 30th, Major Idris Leach's C Company made their attack, but they were forced back under heavy fire as well. Major Idris Leach and Sergeant Bill Eisenmenger lost their lives in that attack. On that same day, there was a request to increase artillery fire. 200 shells were lobbed upon the enemy the very next day, then on September the 1st, after five hours of shelling, two platoons attacked again. They were supported by Vickers guns as men scrambled to climb the ridge to its crest. The artillery softened up the enemy somewhat. Platoon leader Lieutenant Ernst Anzac Walters died leading his men in the bloody carnage. They achieved the objective by the late afternoon, sending many Japanese fleeing from their positions. Owen guns and grenades broke them. Around 60 dead Japanese would be found on the Kunai Spur. Around 40 of them had been killed by artillery fire. Some pillboxes took direct hits as well. The Kunai Spur was renamed Lewis Knoll after Captain Eric Lewis of B Company. To the east, after seizing Lucano Ridge, Milford ordered Lieutenant Colonel Jack Amy's 15th Battalion to head right of the Americans and to penetrate the Japanese defensive line at all cost without delay. At first light on the 31st, Lieutenant Doug Matthews' 18th Platoon of D Company reached a junction between Lucano Ridge and a Razorback. The Japanese hit Matthews' men with motor and machine gun fire. Despite the heavy fire, Matthew and his men crept up 75 yards, but at 12.50 p.m., they were met with a shower of grenades from enemies on a crest above them. Matthew decided to wait for reinforcements and artillery support before attacking up what was going to be called Scout Ridge. Lieutenant George Matthews' brother, Lieutenant Doug Matthews, arrived with the 14th platoon after 1 p.m. and organized a company attack, despite still not having artillery support nor motors. Lieutenant Doug led the 18th platoon forward, leading to 11 men becoming wounded, Doug likewise receiving a shot right to the leg. George helped his brother get down the ridge, and Doug told them before being carried off on a stretcher. About six weeks, I think. George would later recall. I didn't worry too much about it. I thought one of the family had got out of it. Lieutenant Doug Matthews would die the next day. The 15th Battalion's forces kept up the pressure, sending C Company, but they were repulsed likewise. On September the 1st, Colonel Davidson sent B Company around the west side of Charlie Hill, intending to cut off the Japanese supply lines. Captain Frank Greer's B Company crossed a creek during the night and advanced 300 meters from the crest of Charlie Hill. 
They set up an ambush position, unknowingly 30 yards below the enemy perimeter on Charlie Hill. The Japanese tossed multiple counterattacks while A Company managed to establish their own ambush position, nearby in some thick undergrowth on the eastern side of Charlie's Hill. On September the 4th, A Company joined up with B Company to the west, completely sealing off the enemy position. Meanwhile, Captain Yates' C Company was advancing northwards from Lewis Knoll. Their patrols ran into some Japanese, losing many men in the process. At 7.15 a.m. the next morning, they came across a Razorback running towards a strongly held enemy position on the Twin Smiths. Captain Yates led an attack upon the Twin Smiths, but the enemy fire was far too much, forcing them to withdraw. After the defeat at Arnold's Crest, Brigadier Hammer had resorted to harassing actions against the enemy. The 2 and 7th were hitting Arnold's Crest, while Major Wharf's 58th, 59th, and the 2 3rd Independent Company were hitting Rough Hill. Hammer sent Lieutenant Garland's men from C Platoon to infiltrate the Japanese rear and to carry out a diversionary ambush. On September the 3rd, Lieutenant Garland ordered Arnold's Crest to be shelled so that the noise would cover his men as they began their infiltration. They departed at 9 a.m., moving along the Burris Creek between the Japanese positions. They ambushed a supply track at 11 a.m., just when the shelling had stopped. Garland recalled, My men made their way forward through the jungle canopy, like deadly green ghosts. I never heard a sound as they moved forward and adopted their ambush positions. Garland positioned his men on the southern side of the track, with around 10 meters between them, covering more than 1,000 meters of track. Watching while hiding, it was a difficult balance. Garland noted, you soon learn to look through the jungle by slightly moving your head from side to side, whilst preserving your concealment. After two hours of waiting, Garland's men would kill eight Japanese in an ambush and then pull out. Finally, Scout Ridge was devastated with artillery and motor bombardment, allowing Lieutenant George Matthews' men to gain its crest where his brother had died. On September the 3rd, detachments of the 5th Sasebo and 2nd Mazaru SNLF Marines counterattacked and forced the Australians off. While this was occurring, Lieutenant Tom Kavanaugh's A Company of the 15th Battalion seized the unoccupied Lucano Knoll. They had crept up the knoll under artillery support to find freshly dug trenches, weapon pits, and foxholes all recently abandoned. By nightfall, the SNLF Marines attempted to reoccupy the positions but were forced to dig in on the northern side of Lucano Knoll. On the night of September the 4th, General Adachi learnt of the Lei landings and immediately ordered General Nakano to withdraw from Salamawa to assemble at Lei by September the 20th. The Japanese forces were going to withdraw towards Kayapit, or Sio, through Salawakit. Adachi sent the main body of the 20th Division to defend Finshafen, resulting in the suspension of the construction of the Medang Lei Road. The Nakai detachment of Major General Nakai Masataro, currently at Bogodzim, was ordered to defend Kayapit and to hold back the Allied advance to help Nakano's withdrawal. Nakano ordered the 5th Sasebo and 2nd Mazuru SNLF to cover the movement by barge of the 3rd Battalion 102nd Regiment towards Lei, departing on September the 6th. Meanwhile, the 51st Division prepared a fighting withdrawal, and at Lei, General Shogi and Major Mukai just arrived to grab command of the IJ forces. Shogi's attitude was considered to be the ideal representation of a commander. He often went a day or two without opening his mouth. He was a fighting man who did not display signs of joy or sorrow, nor pleasure or pain. Holding the enemy back to the east and west, even within close range, he remained cool. 
He never lost his composure, and he was a large influence upon his officers and men. Shogi concentrated the whole strength of the Lei garrison to block the superior allied forces while Mukai personally led platoons and companies to direct the fighting at the front lines. Meanwhile, on September the 6th, Wu's men continued their advance. The 213th Battalion reached the Bochum River and captured the overgrown Hopai airfield. The 223rd Battalion moved past the 217th, arriving to the left bank of the Bochum River. From there, they pushed back some Japanese to the Singwa Plantation. By the late afternoon, the Japanese were being hit from the east and north, forcing them to retreat. Ever since D-Day, the Japanese had been tossing air raids against Red Beach, the Aoki track, and the amphibian craft plying between the beaches, but they were unable to hinder the movement of men and supplies. At midnight on the 6th, five LCVs and three LCMs landed supplies from Red Beach to Apo Village, alleviating the severe ration and ammunition shortage for the forward troops and shortening supply lines. New plans were formed. On September the 7th, the 24th Brigade would take over the coastal advance while Whitehead's 26th Brigade would advance further inland up the Burip River. The climax for the Lei Salamaua campaign was nearly at hand. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget to check out our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, The Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, The Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube. And I just wanted to say I've noticed a large uptick in one of my episodes on General Zhang Zongcheng, the dog meat general. So thanks guys, I know it's probably you. Also, if you'd like, you can check out my Patreon account at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel for exclusive podcasts. This month's exclusive podcast is going to be a piece on General Tomiyuki Yamashita and how he became the Tiger of Malaya. Check it out, it would mean a lot to me. Operation Postern finally kicked off and the amphibious invasion seems to be a resounding success. The Japanese were completely bamboozled and now frantically trying to get men in the Salamau area over to defend Lei. But would they lose both as a result of it?